Chapter 7 of Life in a Tank by Richard Haig. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Second Battle. Ten days had now elapsed since that day when we had gone back to B with the officers and men who had survived. We had enjoyed every minute of our rest and once more were feeling fit. The remainder of the company had been divided up into crews. The Willies themselves had had the best of care and attention. Most important of all, to the childish minds of that part of the British Army which we represented, we had given another concert, which had been an even greater success than the first. The old bird and Borwick had excelled themselves. We were convinced that something was wrong with the government that would send two such artists to the front, when they should be at home, writing words and music that would live forever. Toward the end of the week, plans for another attack were arranged. This time it was to take place at sea, about five miles north of Inn. We were told that this was to be a big show at last. Part of the Hindenburg line had been taken, and part was still in the hands of the enemy. It had been decided, therefore, that this sector of the line and the village behind it must be captured. Our share in the business consisted of a few tanks to work with the infantry. Two of us went up three days before to arrange the plans with the divisional commander. We wandered up into the Hindenburg line as close as we could get to the Bosch to see what the ground was like, and to decide, if possible, on the routes for the tanks. In the line were innumerable souvenirs. We found the furniture that the Germans had taken out of the villages on their retirement and had used to make their line more comfortable. We found, too, an extraordinary piece of engineering. A tunnel, about ten miles long, ran underneath the whole of the Hindenburg line. It was about thirty or forty feet down and had been dug, we heard, by Russian prisoners. The tunnel was about six feet wide and about five feet high. It had been roughly balked in with timber, and at every twenty yards, a shaft led out of the tunnel up into the trench. Borwick found a large mirror which he felt could not be wasted under the circumstances. He could not resist its charm, so he started lugging it back to six miles to camp. It was very heavy, and his charm had decreased greatly by the time he reached camp and found that no one could make any use of it. The day of the attack was still undecided, and in order to be quite ready when it should come off, we left B with the tanks one evening and took them up to St. L., a little place about 3,000 yards away from the Hindenburg line. Here we staged them behind a railway embankment, underneath a bridge that had been partially blown up. This was the same embankment as a matter of fact, behind which four or five miles away, the Australian dressing station had been established in the last battle. Here we spent two or three days turning up the machines, and many of our leisure moments in watching a howitzer battery which was just behind us. This was fascinating. If you stand by the gun when it is fired, you can see the shell leave the muzzle and watch the black mass shoot at seven or 8,000 yards until it becomes a small speck and finally vanishes just before it hits the ground. We also made an interesting collection of German and English shell cases. These cases are made of brass, and the forty-fives, especially, in the opinion of some people, make very nice rose bowls when they are polished, with wire arranged inside to hold the blossoms. Weird music could be heard issuing from our dugouts at times when we gave an impromptu concert by putting several of these shell cases on a log of wood and playing elaborate tunes on them with a bit of stone. All this merrymaking came to an end, though. One day, we received word that the attack was to come off the next morning. Then began the preparations in earnest, and the day went with a rush. At this part of the Hindenburg line, it was very easy to lose one's way, especially at night. The tanks were scheduled to start moving up at 10 o'clock. Talbot and the old bird, with several men, set out at about 8 and arranged for marks to guide the machines. 
We had just reached a part of the Hindenburg Line which was now in our possession, and were near an ammunition dump, when shells began to fall around us. They were not near enough to do us any harm, and we continued our work. Then one dropped into the ammunition dump and exploded. In an instant, the whole dump was alight. It was like some terrible and giant display of pyrotechnics. Gas shells, beret lights, and stink bombs filled the air with their nauseous odors. Shells of all sizes blew up and fell in steely splinters. The noise was deafening. Cursing our luck, we waited until it died down into a red smoldering mass and then edged up cautiously to continue our work. By this time, Borwick's tank came up and he emerged with a broad smile on his face. Having a good time, he asked genially. There was a frozen silence, excepting for his inane laughter. He made a few more irritating remarks, which he seemed to think were very funny, and then he disappeared inside his tank and prepared to follow us. We had gone ahead a couple of hundred yards when we heard bombs exploding, and looking back, we saw the tank standing still, with fireworks going off under one of our tracks. Presently the noise ceased, and after waiting a moment, we strolled back. As we reached the tank, Bulwark and his crew came tumbling out, making the air blue with their language. They had run over a box of bombs. The only thing that had survived the fire in the ammunition dump, and one of the tracks was damaged. To repair it meant several hours' hard work in the cold and unpleasant proximity to the still smoldering dump. Over Talbot's face spread a broad smile. Having a good time, he asked pleasantly of Bulwark. Infuriated growls were his only answer. We moved on with his men while Bulwark and his crew settled down to work. The night was fortunately dark. They went slowly forward and brought the route almost up to within calling distance of the Germans. The beret lights shattering the darkness over no man's land did not disclose them to the enemy. Suddenly, a Bosch machine gun mechanically turned its attentions toward the place where they were working. With a tightening of every muscle, Talbot heard the slow whisper of the gun. As it turned to sweep the intervening space between the lines, the whisper rose to a shearing hiss. The men dropped to the ground, flattening themselves into the earth. But Talbot stood still. Now, if ever, was the time when an example would count. If they all dropped to the ground, every time a machine gun rattled, the job would never be done. So hands in his pockets, but with an awful wind up, he waited while the soft patter of the bullets came near and the patter quickened into a rain. As it reached him, the rain became a fierce torrent, stinging the top of the parapet behind them as the bullets tore viciously a few inches above his head. Then as it passed, it dropped into a patter once more and finally dropped away in a whisper. Talbot suddenly realized that his throat was aching, but that he was untouched by the storm. The men slowly got to their feet and continued their work in silence. Although the machine gun continued to spatter bullets near them all through the hours they were working, not once again did the men drop when they heard the whisper begin. The job was finally done, and they filed wearily back. The attack was timed to come off at dawn. An hour before, while it was still black as pitch, the tanks moved forward again for their final starting point. McNutt's machine was the first to go. Cheerio, McNutt, we said as he clambered in. Good luck. The men followed, some through the top, some through the side. The doors and portholes were closed, and in a moment the exhaust began to puff merrily. The tank crawled forward and soon disappeared into the blackness. She had about 1,500 yards to go, parallel with the Hindenburg line, and several trenches to cross before coming up with the enemy. We had planned that the tanks would take about three-quarters of an hour to reach their starting point, and that soon after they arrived there, the show would begin. 
Since it was still dark and the attack had not commenced, McNutt and his first driver opened the windows in front of them. They looked out into impenetrable gloom. It was necessary to turn their headlights on, and with this help they crawled along a little more securely. A signal from the driver, and they got into top gear. She bumped along over shell holes and mine craters at the exhilarating speed of about four miles an hour, and then arrived at the first trench to be crossed. It was about ten feet wide, with high banks on each side. One up signals the driver. The gears men get into first gear, and the tank tilts back as it goes up one side of the trench. Suddenly she starts tipping over, and the driver takes out his clutch and puts on his brake hard. McNutt yells out, hold tight, and the tank slides gently down with her nose in the bottom of the trench. The driver lets in his clutch again. The tank digs her nose into the other side and pulls herself up slowly, while her tail dips down into the bottom of the trench. Then comes the great strain, and she pulls herself bodily out of the trench until she balances on the far side. It was now no longer safe to run with lights. They were snapped off. Once more the darkness closed around them, blacker than ever. They could no longer find their route, and McNutt jumped out, walking ahead with the tank lumbering along behind. Twice he lost his way, and they were obliged to wait until he found it again. Then to his intense relief, the moon shone out with a feeble light. It was just enough to illuminate faintly the ground before them, and McNutt re-entered the tank and started on. Their route ran close to the sides of an old quarry, and they edged along cautiously. McNutt, with his eyes glued to the front, decided that they must have passed the end of the quarry. That would mean that they were not far from the spot where they were to wait for the signal to go into action. The moon had again disappeared behind the clouds, but he did not consider it worthwhile to get out again. The journey would be over in a few minutes. Suddenly his heart took a great dive, and he seemed to stop breathing. He felt the tank balance ever so slightly. Staring with aching eyes through the portholes, he saw that they were on the edge of the old quarry, with a forty-foot drop down its steep sides before them. The black depth seemed bottomless. The tank was slipping over. When she shot down, they would all be killed from concussion alone. His heart was pounding so that he could hardly speak, but the driver, too, had seen the danger. For God's sakes, take out your clutch and put your brake on, McNutt yelled, his voice almost drowned by the rattle and roar inside the tank. The man kept his head. As the tail of the tank started tipping up, he managed to somehow, with the brakes, hold her on the edge. For a second or two, she swayed there. She seemed to be unable to decide whether to kill them or not. The slightest crumbling of the earth or faintest outside movement against the tank would precipitate them over the edge. The brakes would not hold for them long. Then the driver acted. Slowly, he put his gears in reverse, keeping the brake on hard until the engine had taken up the strain. Slowly, she moved back until her tail bumped on the ground and she settled down. Neither McNutt nor his driver spoke. They pushed back their tin hats and wiped their foreheads. McNutt glanced back at the men in the rear of the tank. They, of course, had been unable to see out and had no idea of what they had escaped. Now that the danger had passed, he felt an unreasonable annoyance that none of them would ever know what he and the driver had gone through in those few moments. Then the feeling passed. He signaled neutral left. The gearsman locked his left track and the tank swung over, passing safely by the perilous spot. They settled down now to a snail's pace, shutting off their engine as the Germans could not be more than 150 or 200 yards away. Running at full speed, the engine would have been heard by them. In a few moments, they arrived at their appointed station. McNutt glanced at his watch. They had only a few moments to wait. The engine was shut off, 
and they stopped. The heat inside the tank was oppressive. McNutt and James opened the top and crawled out. The men followed. They looked around. The first streaks of light were beginning to show in the sky. A heavy silence hung over everything, the silence that always precedes a bombardment. Presumably, only the attacking forces feel this. Even the desolatory firing seems to have faded away. All the little ordinary noises have ceased. It is a sickening quiet, so loud in itself, that it makes one's heart beat quicker. It is because one is listening so intensely for the guns to break out that all sounds have lost their significance. One seems to have become all ears, to have no sense of sight or touch or taste or smell. All seems to have become merged in the sense of hearing. The very air itself seems tense with listening. Only the occasional rattle of a machine gun breaks the stillness. Even this passes unnoticed. Slowly the minute hand crept round to the half hour, and the men slipped back into their steel home. Doors were bolted and portholes shut, save for the tiny slits in front of the officer and driver, through which they peered. The engine was ready to start. The petrol was on and flooding. They waited quietly. Their heavy breathing was the only sound. The minute hand reached the half hour. With the crash and swish of thousands of shells, the guns smashed the stillness. Instantly the flash of their explosion lit up the opposite trenches. For a fraction of a second the thought came to McNutt how wonderful it was that man could produce a sound to which nature had no equal, either in violence or intensity, but the time was for action and not for reflection. Start her up, yelled out McNutt, but the engine would not fire. What the devil's the matter, cried James. A bit of tinkering with the carburetor, and the engine purred softly. Its noise was drowned in the pandemonium raging around them. James let in the clutch, and the monster moved forward on her errand of destruction. Although it was not light enough to distinguish forms, the flashes of the shell fire and the burst from the shrapnel lit up that part of the Hindenburg line that lay on the other side of the barrier. 150 yards, and the tank was almost on top of the barricade. Bombs were exploding on both sides. McNutt slammed down the shutters of the portholes in front of him and his driver. Bullets, he said shortly. One came through, I think, sir, James replied. With the porthole shut, there was no chance for bullets to enter now through the little pinpoints directly above the slits and the shutters. In order to see through these, it is necessary to place one's eye directly against the cold metal. They are safe, for if a bullet does hit them, it cannot come through, although it may stop up the hole. Suddenly a dull explosion was heard on the roof of the tank. They're bombing us, sir, cried one of the gunners. McNutt signaled to him, and he opened fire from his sponsor. They plunged along amid a hail of bullets, while bombs exploded all around them. McNutt and James, with that instinctive sense of direction which comes to men who control these machines, felt that they were hovering on the edge of the German trench. Then a sudden flash from the explosion of a huge shell lit up the ground around them, and they saw four or five gray-clad figures, about ten yards away, standing on the parapet, hysterically hurling bombs at the machine. They might as well have been throwing pebbles. Scornfully, the tank slid over into the wide trench and landed with a crash in the bottom. For a moment, she lay there without moving. The Germans thought she was stuck. They came running along, thinking to grapple with her, but they never reached her. For at once, the guns on both sides opened fire, and the Germans disappeared. The huge machine dragged herself up the steep ten-foot side of the trench. As she neared the top, it seemed as if the engine would not take the final pull. James took out his clutch put his brake on hard, and raced the engine. Then, letting the clutch in with a jerk, the tank pulled herself right onto the point of balance and tipped slowly over, what had been the parapet of the German position. 
Now she was in the wire which lay in front of the trench. McNutt signaled back, swing round to the left, parallel to the lay of the line. A moment's pause and she moved forward relentlessly, crushing everything in her path and sending out a stream of bullets from every turret to any of the enemy who dared to show themselves above the top of the trench. At the same time, our own troops, who had waited behind the barricade to bomb their way down from traverse to traverse, rushed over the heap of sandbags, tangled wire, wood, and dead men which barred their way. The moral effect of the tank's success and the terror she inspired cheered our infantry on to greater efforts. The tank crew were at the time unaware of the infantry's action, as none of our own men could be seen. The only indication of the fact was the bursting of the bombs which gradually moved from fire bay to fire bay. The corporal touched McNutt on the arm. I don't believe our people are keeping up with us, sir, he said. They seem to have stopped about thirty yards back. All right, McNutt answered. We'll turn around. McNutt and James opened their portholes to obtain a clearer view. Five yards along to the left, a group of Germans were holding up the advancing British. They had evidently prepared a barricade in case of a possible bombing attack on our part, and this obstacle, together with a fusillade of bombs which met them, prevented our troops from pushing on. McNutt seized his gun and pushed it through the mounting, but found he could not swing round far enough to get an aim on the enemy. But James was in a better position. He picked the great figures off one by one until the bombing ceased and our men jumped over the barricade and came down among the dead and wounded Germans. Then a sudden and unexplainable sense of disaster caused McNutt to look round. One of his gunners lay quite still on the floor of the tank, his back against the engine and a stream of blood trickling down his face. The corporal, who stood next to him, pointed to the sights in the turret and then to his forehead, and McNutt realized that a bullet must have slipped through the small space, entering the man's head as he looked along the barrel of his gun. There he lay, along one side of the tank, between the engine and the sponsor. The corporal tried to get in position to carry on firing with his own gun, but the dead body impeded his movements. There was only one thing to do. The corporal looked questioningly at McNutt and pointed to the body. The officer nodded quickly, and the left gearsman and the corporal dragged the body and propped it up against the door. Immediately the door flew open. The back of the corpse fell down and half the body lay hanging out, with its legs still caught on the floor. With feverish haste, they lifted the legs and threw them out. But the weight of the body balanced them back again through the still open door. The men were desperate. With a tremendous heave, they turned the dead man upside down, shoved the body out, and slammed the door shut. They were just in time. A bomb exploded directly beneath the sponson where the dead body had fallen. To every man in the tank there came a feeling of swift gratitude that the bombs had caught the dead man and not themselves. They plowed across another trench without dropping into the bottom, for it was only six feet wide. Daylight had come by now, and the enemy was beginning to find that his brave efforts were of no avail against these monsters of steel. All this time the German guns had not been silent. McNutt's tank crunched across the ground amid a furious storm of flying earth and splinters. The strain was beginning to be felt. Although one is protected from machine gun fire in a tank, the sense of confinement is at times terrible. One does not know what is happening outside his little steel prison. One often cannot see where the machine is going. The noise inside is deafening, the heat terrific. Bombs shatter on the roof and on all sides. Bullets spatter savagely against the walls. There is an awful lack of knowledge a feeling of blind helplessness at being cooped up. One is entirely at the mercy of the big shells. If a shell hits a tank near the petrol tank, the men may perish by fire, as did Gould, without a chance of escape. Going down with your ship seems pleasant compared to burning up with your tank. 
In fighting in the open, one has, at least, air and space. McNutt, however, was lucky. They could now see the sunken road before them, which was their objective. Five nines were dropping around them now. It was only a matter of moments, it seemed, when they would be stuck. Do you think we shall make it? McNutt asked James. We may get there, but shall we get back? That's the question, sir. McNutt did not answer. They had both had over two years' experience of the accuracy of the German artillery, and they did not believe in miracles. But they had their orders. They must simply do their duty and trust to luck. They reached the sunken road. The tank was swung around. Their orders were to reach their objective and remain there until the bombers arrived. McNutt peered out. No British were in sight, and he snapped his porthole shut. Grimly, they settled down to wait. The moments passed. Each one seemed as if it would be their last. Would the infantry never come? Would there be any sense in just sitting there until a German shell annihilated them if the infantry never arrived? Had they been pushed back by a German rush? Should he take it upon himself to turn back? McNutt's brain whirled. Then, after hours it seemed of waiting, around the corner of a traverse he saw one of the British tin hats. Nothing in the world could have been a happier sight. A great wave of relief swept over him. Three or four more appeared. Realizing that they too had reached their objective, they stopped and began to throw up a rough form of barricade. More men poured in. The position was consolidated, and there was nothing more for the tank to do. They swung round and started back. Two shells dropped about twenty yards in front of them. For a moment, McNutt wondered whether it would be well to change their direction. No, we'll keep right on and chance it, he said aloud. The next moment a tremendous crash seemed to lift the tank off the ground. Black smoke and flying particles filled the tank. McNutt and James looked around, expecting to see the top of the machine blown off. But nothing had happened inside. No one was injured. Although shells continued to fall around them, and the German machine gun raged at them, they got back safely. Brigade headquarters, where McNutt reported, was full of expectancy. Messages were pouring in over the wires. The men at the telephones were dead beat, but cool and collected. Any news of the other buses, McNutt asked eagerly. The buzzers shook their head wearily. He rushed up to a couple of men who were being carried to a dressing station. Do you fellows know how the tanks made out, he asked. One of them had seen two of the machines on the other side of the German line, he said. In answer to the questions which were fired at him, he could only say that the tanks had pushed on beyond the German front line. Then on the top of the hill, against the skyline, they saw a little group of three or four men. James recognized them. Well, there's Sergeant Browning and Mr. Borwick, sir, he said. What's happened to their tank, I wonder? He and McNutt hurried over to meet them. Borwick smiled coolly. Hello, he said in his casual manner. What's happened to your bus? What did you do was fired at him. We got stuck in the German wire, and the infantry got ahead of us, he said. We pushed on and fell into a nest of three machine guns. They couldn't hurt us, of course, and the Boches finally ran away. We knocked out about ten of them. And just as we were going on and were already moving, we suddenly started twisting around in circle. What do you think had happened? A trench mortar had got us fooled in one of our tracks, and the beastly thing broke. So we all tumbled out and left her there. Didn't you go with the infantry? asked McNutt. No, they'd reached their objective by that time, Bulwark replied. So we saved the tank guns, and I pinched the clock. Then we strolled back, and here we are, he concluded. Talbot joined the group as he finished. But where's the rest of your crew? he asked. Bulwark said quietly, Jameson and Corporal Fisk got knocked out coming back. He lit a cigarette and puffed at it. There was silence for a moment. Then Talbot said, Bad luck. Have you got their pay books? No, I forgot them, Bulwark answered. But his sergeant, 
handed over the little brown books which were the only tangible remains of the two men who had gone into action that morning. The pay books contained two or three pages on which were jotted down their pay with the officer's signature. They had been used as pocket books and held a few odd letters which the men had received a few days before. Talbot had often been given the pay books of men in his company who were killed, but he never failed to be affected when he discovered the letters and little trifles which had meant so much to the men who had carried them and which would mean so much to those whom they had left behind. In silence, they went back to McNutt's tank and sat down, waiting for news. Scraps of information were beginning to trickle in. Have gained our objective in H. Wood, have not been counterattacked. Cannot push on owing to heavy machine gun fire from C. Holding out with twenty men in trench, running north from derelict wood. Can I have reinforcements? These were the messages pouring in from different points on the lines of attack. Sometimes the messages came in twos and threes. Sometimes there were minutes when only a wild buzzing could be heard, and the men at the telephones tried to make the buzzing intelligible. The situation cleared up finally, however. Our troops had apparently gained their objectives along the entire line to the right. On the left, the next brigade had been hung up by devastating machine gun fire. As McNutt and Talbot waited around for news and fresh orders, one of their men hurried down and saluted. He brought the news that the other three tanks had returned having reached their objectives. Two had but little opposition, and the infantry had found no difficulty in gaining their points of attack. The third tank, however, had had three men wounded at a pillbox. These pillboxes were little concrete forts, which the Germans had planted along his line. The walls are of feral concrete, two or three feet thick. As the tank reached the pillbox, two Germans slipped out of the rear door. Three of the tank crew clambered down and got inside the pillbox. In a moment, the firing from inside ceased, and presently the door flew open. Two British tank men, dirty and grimy, escorting ten Germans, filed out. The Germans had their hands above their heads, and when ordered to the rear, they went with the greatest alacrity. One of the three Englishmen was badly wounded. The other two were only slightly injured but they wandered down to the dressing station with the hope that Blighty would soon welcome them. Although Talbot had his orders to hold the tanks in readiness in case they were needed, no necessity arose, and after a few hours waiting, the Major sent word to him to start the tanks back to the embankment, there to be kept for the next occasion. Better still, the men were to be taken back to B, in the motor lorries, just as they had been after the first battle. Water, comparative quiet, blankets, these were the luxuries that lay before them. As he sat, crowded into the swaying motor lorry that lurched back along the shell-torn road to be, Talbot slipped his hand into his pocket. He touched the checkbook, a package of cigarettes, and a razor. Then he smiled. They were the final preparations he had made that morning before he went into action. After all, he had not needed them, but one never could tell. One might be taken prisoner. One needed no such medical preparations against the possibility of death, but a prisoner, that was different. The checkbook had been for his use in a possible gray prison camp in the land of his enemies. Checks would some time or other reach his English bank, and his people would know that he was at least alive. The cigarettes were to keep up his courage in the face of whatever disaster might befall him. And the razor, most important of all, the razor was to keep bright and untarnished the traditions and prestige of the British Army. End of chapter 7 of Life in a Tank, 